Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. It's good to be with you again. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. And yeah, here we are. Uh, Well, I guess we should say that we are recording the week after a set of particularly egregious decisions made by the Supreme Court. I'm going to call them egregious. There are lots of adjectives one might use. <laughs> so that's, that's a fairly, that's like a, not a good non-expletive adjective for it. I mean, sure. yeah, right. We are <laughs> that's in broadca- broadcast friendly. <laughs> right. Yeah. We don't, we don't want to get our podcast uh, explicit labeled or whatever, but that's, uh, right. that's, that's a right. little hard given the context of our times to pull that off. Uh, so that's that's been the mood. Uh, how are you doing, Kira? Well, yeah, I would have to say with respect to that, my state of mind is not great. Um, I was feeling pretty raw after the Roe ruling and the gun ruling, and then the EPA ruling. Um, just flattened me. <laughs> I was, it really, really, um, I don't know. It, it kind of says all you need to know about how the country is going to address the challenges of climate change, um, which is to say apparently as passively and ineffectually as possible. Um, yeah. It's really a, a significant disappointment and it puts so much more pressure on cities and states and companies and other entities. Um, But I think we all know that we really do need all the tools, including federal regulation and agency oversight. Um, So yeah, it's very disappointing. And I've heard recently as well that there's some another, there are probably some other rulings that I not even, that aren't even on my radar because I know they did a whole swath of things. Um, So yeah, I need to probably do some more reading. I got a little bit distracted by the EPA ruling. Um, I was, I will say, I was happy to see the American Institute of Architects come out with a statement about it and really urging members to reach out to their elected officials and urge them towards stronger climate actions on every front. So for what it's worth. (laughs) Yeah. 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 yeah, That seems like the right reaction. Cause I think one of the things I've, I've been struggling with since the announcements is that some I've seen some folks post on social media something that feels dangerous to me which is um it's so it was you were starting to say it but you didn't say it it was <laughs> okay now we have to look to to localities and states and the private sector because that's how we're really going to solve climate change and I was thinking we well, really can't say that about abortion like you can't say like, oh, well, now we'll just tackle the abortion issue in the private sector. And you can't really say that about gun control either. And I think that one of the things that we need to do right now as climate people is to not give up on the basic rights and fights for um, good governance yes. and like, you know, a, a government that represents us just because we lost this battle, because That's it does right. tend to go that way with the climate set that we're like, oh, okay, well, we lost federal elections. So we're going to focus on local and state for a while. Yes. And oh, we lost local and state. So we're going to do all the private sector stuff. 
without recognizing that like those those playing fields of change are very different and limited yeah. you know and like there are things we cannot do if it's if if the federal government continues to go in this direction and for folks who work on abortion they know that there's there's no world in which they can win without better legislators at the federal level without better laws right um, and protections and all of those things and so they don't i don't think that they have that same potential to be like oh okay well never mind we're not going to focus on that we're just going to go over here and do this other thing yeah and so i appreciate the aia did that by saying sort of like okay if you're upset don't you know like let's let's then let's change the system that upset you let's make sure we're putting our resources and time and energy into um changing the systems that just got damaged rather than ignoring them you know yeah absolutely i mean i really do think that's one of the interesting things about the enormity of the climate crisis is that it, i think leaders on this topic in the private sector recognize that we need the government sector uh, you know like it 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 will take it all we have to do it that way we can't yeah. We can't just, to your point, shift gears and be like, okay, never mind that. I mean, I do think we have to be able to, you know, that was the one thing, the, the experience, you know, when when Trump was elected and pulled us out of Paris, a, a lot of states and cities did step up. And that was actually fantastic, right? There was a surge of energy and that's good, but we do need it all. We have to do it that way. There's no, and especially with our our country's sort of outsized role in the world. Um, we absolutely can't do it without federal leadership. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes you think like, yeah, I think one of the classic examples of that is that we're we're still in a coalition uh, that came yep. out at that time. And I think, you know, in one in one way, it's like metaphorically what they were saying is like, all right, well, we're gonna be the ones to try to hold this together until someone can come along to to move it forward as well as it can. As you're saying, there is a role. There's absolutely a really necessary component of this that is local action, and state action. And I'm, I'm not saying that at all, of course. I think it's yep. it's the notion of saying if we lose a particular, I mean, really even losing a state isn't acceptable, you know, like um, everybody has to be fighting. So yes, if you're someone that works on uh, private sector change. You can keep doing that. We need you. And maybe you need to do it a little bit more with a little more oomph and a little more momentum <laughs> yeah. because your, you know, your fellow travelers are not able to move as fast right now, but it doesn't mean we ignore or somehow write off that section of the work, um, and believe that we can somehow do it without them, you know? Um, yep. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, send, we're sending lots of good thoughts and support and, you know, hopefully ideas for funding to all our friends that are still fighting in that realm right now. Uh, for sure. So, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a hard one. Um, it really is. I'm waiting. I'm, I'm sort of still in the, I guess, gathering my thoughts following those rulings and all of that and that stage where rather and I'm and I hope it will convert to momentum for many of us yeah. because we really we just don't have time 
to slow things. And if we if if we are going to lose some some of the acceleration on the federal side for a little bit, um, we need to just keep yeah. you know increase it elsewhere. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking about that too. That it's not really the same as some of these kind of collective moments we've had in the past few years where there's something clear that everybody is doing as a result. Like, I mean, yeah. God bless them. I got a phone call from the Sierra Club on Friday asking for money. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> you should be doing this right now. Like there are actions we can all take for sure, um, you know, on all fronts, on abortion, gun control, et cetera. But uh, it, it's, it, that's not exactly what's going on here. There's sort of a collective um, despair moment happening. And, and, and part of me actually thinks that that's okay. Yeah. Because I guess for me, and we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, but um, I think it's really important for us to not valorize the myth of American progress too much in, mm -hmm. you know, to believe that we're always, that, that life is always getting better in America. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> just not true. It's just not true. And I think this was a rare moment where a lot of people realized that it's not true, that life is not always getting better, that sometimes it's getting worse. Yep. And so if we don't assume that like, ah, oh, well, you know, um, like th that we just kind of, the, the, it's the nature of America that we gradually just improve ourselves because we're, cool like that <laughs> like, <laughs> you know like why why is it that we just are so confident in that kind of thing I think that that moment of recognition um should produce good things it should produce us understanding that um that like what is there's that wonderful like the arm of something bends towards justice like we don't bend yes. we have to actually push <laughs> Yep. I don't know. Anyway, sorry, I wish I knew that quote. Um, but yeah, for me, that's it. It's more people realizing that like justice is fought for, freedoms are fought for. There will always be that struggle. We always have to fight it. We can't just assume, you know, it's yep. sad, but like true. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But anyway, hope you all are getting through it. Uh, yeah. And um, we're happy to you know be here to continue the conversations and to give you something to look to to keep you going because i feel like all of the folks that we have on our show and today's guest is no exception to that are the things that make me feel like we do actually push pretty dang well in making progress so. absolutely absolutely couldn't agree more and we are so delighted to have claire maxfield with us today Hello, Claire. Hello, it's great to be here. Well, we're just delighted to have you. I'm gonna do a quick introduction and then we will jump right into questions. Um, as Managing Director of Atelier 10's San Francisco office, Claire is a recognized leader in the environmental design and delivery of large, complex, environmentally ambitious master plans, landscapes, and buildings. Her work spans from the first Lee Platinum building at Ithaca College to designing the largest and most sustainable mass transit development on the West Coast. Um, Claire, we're thrilled to have you and I hope that you can get us started by telling us a little bit about how and why you got involved in environmental design, what brought you to that architecture and sustainability. What has been your path? Yeah, in some ways my path has been a surprisingly straight line. <laughs> so I, I come from kind of a 
environmentalist background. You know, I ran my very unpopular high school environmental club and lived in the eco dorm in college. Um, and I, I ended up studying kind of a funny combination of things. I studied environmental sociology, environmental philosophy, uh, and subjects related to the kind of humanity side of environmentalism. And then I studied architectural history and theory. And so my goal was to look at how architecture shapes our relationship with and our perception of the natural world. It, it literally shapes us. We live in it all day. We look through its windows. You know, how does that form affect our perception and how can it kind of change how we think about that relationship of indoors and outdoors of, of us and nature. And I also had this kind of transformative moment in college, as so many of us do in college, right, of looking at environmental sociology. And, you know, my background had been this idea that to make the world a better place, you need to change people's minds. You convince people one by one that the environment matters, and that's how we change the world. And environmental sociology really tossed that entire conception out the window in a way that was, you know, is still with me to this day, that it said, actually, you can't do anything you want without institutions in place, that we're shaped by institutions and social structures. And you need them to be able to act on any ideas that you've got. And there's, there's this kind of cyclical relationship between how we look at our relationship to the natural world and how that is shaped by social institutions, and then in turn, how we shape those institutions. So like the very basic idea, I remember on the first day of environmental sociology, they, they gave us is, you know, you can change everyone's mind in the world and teach them to care about recycling. But if there's no recycling center, they can't recycle. And that recycling center won't get built unless people advocate for it. So you need the institution to take individual action and you need individual action to change the institution. Uh, so that's really was like very foundational for me to say, oh, we're working on an institutional level, not an individual level, when we think about how architecture shapes our perception of the natural world. So then I went to architecture school, you know, faced a lot of folks who weren't very interested in sustainability. I learned really well how to speak in code <laughs> and talk about sustainability without using any words that sound like sustainability. Um, yeah, and then sort of fell into this world of sustainability consulting. I did not know it was a field when I, when I graduated architecture school. I graduated in a recession, I applied everywhere, my whole class was unemployed, and I found myself Googling green architecture in New York City <laughs> and stumbled across this firm called Atelier 10. And 18 years later, I am still here and, and still, still doing sustainable architecture. So, it, you know, in some ways this path was really linear, like marrying environmentalism and architecture from a very young age. And in some ways it's been this kind of interesting path through changing my mind over time and, um, and finding a role for myself where I feel like I really can focus on sustainability and architecture simultaneously. Mm, yeah, yeah, you, that was a good Google search you did. That like you really, <laughs> <laughs> I am impressed. I feel, I mean, I guess I do, I, I'm not surprised that you found Atelier 10, but like, um, <laughs> I, I love that that's how you found it. It was like, okay, I'm gonna Google this and I'm gonna find a job and- it was and, a little bit of desperation. Like I've applied everywhere yeah. I've ever heard of. Who else is out there? Wow. <laughs> That's so cool. Okay, well, so we're going to ask you in a second about about Atelier 10 to describe it a little bit more for people who don't know. But I um, just like as a teaser, I'm wondering if you can tell our audience a little bit about what it means to have your job and like I know it's basically like you are a full-time green building nerd at least that's how I think about it <laughs> like that's Atelier 10 you know you, we'll we'll give you a chance to describe the full thing but like 
what kind of what kind of people do you think would find it fulfilling to be the full-time nerd versus you know there are people who have the job where they kind of do a little of this a little of that or they're an architect but they still do sustainability with some of their time like what's what is it um what's it like to be in your shoes yeah, it's really lucky. I mean, <laughs> I feel lucky every day to be doing this, that yeah, you're sort of devoting all your time and energy to saying, how can we make the world a better place using, you know, architecture and the built environment as our medium. Um, and it's, I mean, it's kind of interesting. It's, you know, green building nerds are, are a terrific bunch. It's a lot of really curious people who, you know, want to find answers to really detailed technical questions. They want to share what they learn, which, you know, is not always the case in technical fields. Um, it takes a lot of great critical thinkers. So, you know, every project is different. Every problem we face is different. So there's a lot of like, how do we logically attack a problem and come up with a solution? And there's a lot of working together to figure that out because we don't already know what the answers will be. And in my mind, it's it, there's sort of like two, two skill sets that you better enjoy if you want to do this. And so one is really the analytical side. Like we got to figure out some right technical solutions for our buildings. Sometimes we really don't know what they are. Sometimes we've got a pretty good sense, but we've got to analyze it anyway. But there's this kind of like, you know, math skills and building science and technical skills. But there's this other side that people don't realize is there, which is really the, the kind of uh, persuasive side that, you know, I always tell our new staff when they're joining us that maybe half your time will be spent figuring out the technical side and the other half will be convincing people to do the right thing. So there's, you know, graphics and visual communications and how we tell the story of why this matters, how you give the bigger picture of why you're joining, you know, joining a larger movement if you do this move. All of that takes a huge amount of time. It takes, you know, really knowing the people you're talking to and what will convince them and why are they nervous about something and how can we get them over that hump. Um, there's just a huge amount of thought that has to go into the, the people side. <laughs> and so when you marry those two together, you get a, you know, a whole room full of green building nerds who are trying to make the world a better place <laughs> and it's uh it's, it's a lot of fun and a lot of very different personalities yeah i i love this um and especially because i've known enough people that worked at a10 that i love that there has to be that two sides and i got to chance to sort of work with you a little bit um uh, when i was at uc berkeley and it was really fun to to, to watch you decide, is it time to make an analytical data-driven argument or is it time to communicate about values or what? And like nav navigating those in real time is, is, uh, is an art and a science, Claire, and I love watching you do it. Um, <laughs> so thank you. And, and let's, um, maybe just for folks that don't know, can you talk a little bit more about Atelier 10, also referred to as A10 on the, on the, in the world? And uh, like, what is, what is your role in projects, what kinds of projects do you work on, you know, just sort of help people understand what the firm is, because it is kind of a, it's a specific type of company, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, we come from a, you know, originally when the firm was founded, we were a firm of mechanical engineers and then pretty quickly kind of moved into the space of looking at sustainability and high performance buildings. You know, it's had many different names over the years. Um, but, you know, our role is really to focus on the big picture, to say for each project, what is it that we should focus on for sustainability? So where can we make the most difference? And then come up with the entire design team with what are the best possibilities to put on the table. And that could be facades, mechanical systems, lighting, materials, plants, you know, you name it. There's sort of this very broad palette of potential areas to look for sustainable solutions. 
And then we analyze the heck out of them and figure out which ones make the most sense and which ones we can afford and which ones sort of go with the design ideas that are happening on the project. And then we spend a lot of time making sure they, they make it all the way through the project. <laughs> so that, you know, that they're not just a concept that ends up slowly getting chipped away at, but that they really make it into construction documents and all the way through construction. And so in this role, we get to basically work across the entire design team. So we're working very strongly with the architects, but also with all of the other consultants on the project. You know, the systems we work in tend to be interdisciplinary. So like if you're talking about a water conservation system, you might be talking to the plumbing engineer, the landscape architect, the irrigation folks, the cooling tower design, you know, all of that. You're sort of marrying together those, those many different disciplines into a single design solution. Um, and we're, we're pretty lucky in that we get to have really strong opinions on projects. There's, uh, the design team kind of invites us in to push them around and, you know, tell them what they can do better. You know, we're, we're only at the table if they want to hear that information. So we're lucky that we get to see a subset of the design industry that wants to push the projects for sustainability. So we, you know, we do get to talk about facade design and architectural expression. We do get to get in there on mechanical systems. Um, it's a pretty lucky situation to be in that we get to make our voices heard really strongly and that usually doesn't offend anybody. Very occasionally it does, but usually we can kind of offer our unfiltered opinions uh, across the design and, um, and have them listen to. And then at a really tangible level, we get to work on building types like single family houses up to giant master plans all over the world. So huge range of project types. We tend to focus in on really technically thorny problems. So like we want to work on hospitals and labs and things that are like energy consumptive and hard to crack. And then we also want to work on beautiful architecture. So, you know, there's kind of a really wide range of projects we get to work on. It, it absolutely never gets boring. It sounds like an amazing job, Claire. <laughs> You're really doing a great job of describing both the diversity of it, but also really the breadth. Um, and I, as a communications person, I'm really happy that you mentioned the persuasion and the, and the, you know, bringing your, your voice to the table and what that looks like. I feel like that's something that's not really taught in school in a lot of these fields, um, but it's so important in practice. Um, so I'm, I'm happy you mentioned that. I'm wondering if you could um, talk a little bit about something that you're most proud of accomplishing in your work life. I, I mean, I think uh, I would say maybe there's, there's two things. I think I'm most proud of being able to take this sort of like environmentalist teenager I started out of and feel like, you know, there really is a direct connection to that and kind of being in a position to be the voice of environmental conscience on our projects. Uh, I think, again, it can get easy to be lost in the technical side to be like, we want to do more accurate analysis. We want to learn new tools. We want to do better energy modeling. There's new products. You can sort of get lost in the the accuracy question or the, the, the analytical kind of feedback loop. And that stuff is incredibly important. <laughs> but I'm really proud that, you know, Atelier 10 has been able to take this, this role that says, yeah, but what's most important to the project? <laughs> like, how can we actually make this project better? And are we making sure we're spending our time and our energy as a design team to make that happen? Um, are we doing the best we possibly can? Like, being able to sort of feel like there's a real advocacy role in that to not just say like, have I done the best energy modeling one can do, but has that energy modeling led to the best possible outcome we could have the most carbon save, you know, I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, I've gotten to spend my time doing that. And I think as a firm, as a culture, we, we've sort of passed that on to now, you know, a whole army of consultants asking that question all the time on many different topics all over the world. 
that to me is like an incredibly important part of this. And it, it leads to a lot of these firsts, like, you know, doing the first green building on a campus back in the early 2000s and teaching them it's not that hard. And now, you know, they have dozens of green buildings on their campus or, you know, doing like first master plans that were, you know, 100% renewably powered and things like that. But you can kind of lead the way with these things and they start to spiral into having a real meaningful impact in the world. Um, so, you know, I'm sort of like proud of having this building science backing, but not getting lost in the building science and, and sticking with the advocacy portion of it as well. And having that balance to me is something I'm really, really excited about. Um, and also, you know, I, I'm pretty proud of the fact that Atelier 10 in San Francisco is a, you know, we're a women-led organization, you know, of our five directors in our office, four of us are women. We all have school-aged children, <laughs> which is a really challenging balance to pull off, as I'm sure you guys know. Um, we started our office in a global recession, so like, man, was the deck stacked against it. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm, you know, pretty happy that we've landed on our feet and continue to employ some just great, powerful women in this industry, along with their great, powerful male counterparts. But it's pretty unusual on the technical side of things to to be women-led, and so I'm, I'm pretty happy that we can say we are. That's fantastic. I think you can be more than pretty proud of that. I think you can be very, very proud of that. That's exciting. Um, and I'm and I'm also wondering if you can talk a little bit about a project that you're working on maybe right now that you'd like listeners to know about. Yeah, I mean, I've got one that I'm just, I'm like so thrilled with how it's turned out. It's under construction now. Uh, it's Horton Plaza in San Diego. Uh, and to me, this might be a dated reference, but it makes me feel like Stefan and those Saturday Night Live skits. It's got a little bit of everything. Um, it's um, it's an adaptive reuse prop, uh, project of a of a dead shopping mall. So you know, here's an entire building type that we're seeing all across the country is turning out to be kind of in dire straits. And we have this decision before us of do we scrape them and start from scratch, or do we find a way to reuse them? And this project has chosen to reuse Horton Plaza. Uh, and turn it from a dead shopping mall into either an office or a biotech space as a corn shell project. So it's got this kind of adaptive reuse underpinnings. It's because of our adaptive reuse and some smart decisions in design, it's saving about 70% of embodied carbon compared to building new. It's got near net zero performance. Um, there's a lot of like food and beverage retail that we couldn't quite get all the way to net zero, but it's close. <laughs> um, so again, as an existing building getting to almost net zero, Pretty happy about that. It's got an all electric design. We did a ton of facade optimization on a, on a tight budget to, to look at how do you get really high quality daylight uh, and reduce glare without overglazing the facade, which is often you know, the first instinct on projects like this. It's got black water reuse uh, in San Diego, which is incredibly important. There is no water to be had down there. So finding ways to reuse water on a project scale is, is really key. And then it's got these kind of strong indoor outdoor connections as well that it was set up as a shopping mall with sort of a main street down the middle that was outdoors, which is a really peculiar design in some ways, but it gave us some great abilities to sort of like have views and have indoor outdoor connections in what might have otherwise just been like a giant blocky office space. So it, it's kind of like checking all sorts of these boxes, um, so many of them for private development that I'm really surprised. Um, you know, when you work on private corn shell developments, you don't always expect that you would be able to to get this far with the project. So it's one I'm really thrilled at. So check it out, Horton Plaza in San Diego under construction now, and hopefully uh, will be built soon and, and we'll see some of these performance numbers start to roll in. That's fantastic. I can't wait to see that. And listeners who <laughs> listen frequently will know, I mean, I'm a 
I completely adore adaptive reuse. So you had me at adaptive reuse, um, but I'm so excited for models like this because I feel like this is really where we need to be going. Um, it's just more and more really inventive, creative and highly effective reuse project. Those projects, those are really great numbers and, and exciting attributes. I can't wait to see it. Um, so thank you for your leadership on that, Claire. I do wanna shift gears just a little bit now um, and talk a little bit about sort of the movement or the industry that we're a part of, that you're a part of. Um, the green building industry, I think is often thought of as a movement. And I'm curious, we like to ask our guests um, whether you feel like you're a part of an industry or a part of a movement or, or how you think about those, those categories for yourself. Yeah, I mean, you've, you, I've alluded to this already, but you know, I really strongly feel that we are part of the movement. We're part of the, you know, the history of the environmental movement in the United States has had this sort of complicated and long trajectory, and I think it's really important that we see ourselves as part of that movement. That, you know, again, coming from coming from my attitude that so much of this is about social institutions and about advocating for change and about persuasion and how we communicate these things. Um, I think it's it's like quite important that we don't see this as solving one-off technical problems, but we instead see our work as an extension of kind of making environmental progress in the US as a whole and, and globally as a whole. And you know, part of it, I just think there's a lot of value in banding together and sort of like, if you look at an individual project, there's probably 50 things you could choose to make more sustainable. And part of how we choose which ones to really spend time on energy on is, is partly how important are they to the project and how much good can we do? But also, is there some ability to leverage these larger, this larger movement in play? Like I'm thinking of, you know, lots of people have quibbles with lead. We all have things we love about it and things we hate about it. But there's no denying that it's had this, you know, that everybody banded together and said, this is how we're going to do it. Move the industry forward really quickly. Like, especially for things like material supply chain, where it went from people having no idea what you're talking about to, to being able to respond consistently to a set of requests and to a set of mandates on the material side really help move whole industries it, it, it kind of unified in a single direction. That peer pressure aspect is really productive also. So, you know, anytime we can kind of latch onto those larger movements, I think it's quite helpful. And, you know, right now I see it with embodied carbon that, you know, I think embodied carbon is incredibly important. I think it's necessary to tackling short-term climate change and like staying under these, you know, carbon levels we need to stay under. If we don't tackle embodied carbon, there's no way we'll ever stay under those levels or maybe we won't anyway, but we can try. <laughs> um, but you know, I'm not the only one who thinks that way. And the fact that everybody is now sort of like focused on this, this previously ignored strand of sustainability in the built environment is, is, you know, it's amazing to me that in maybe two years, it's gone from no one having any proficiency with that whatsoever to it being a completely mainstream topic. Um, and, and we're seeing real headway in what materials are out there in the market that respond to this. Th those those type of like gathering together and treating this as a movement, I think, is just absolutely necessary to how we we transform the built environment. Mm. I love this point so much. Like the one when you were, it's it's really been like a light bulb moment for me, Claire, to sort of um, articulate to people why it is important to care about the collective definitions or the collective uh pursuits uh for the industry in terms of advancing you know and improving our our impacts it's that 
like, yes, you can be really nerdy and say, well, the best definition for our specific building of a super, super sustainable building is this, then it's totally bespoke to that building. Um, and what that means is that we cannot roll that building up with every other building and tell a story about the movement. It means that you can't say something pithy to, to show the world that we are all doing this or that, you know, we, we can't measure our progress. We can't do all of these things that we need to do. And so in part, what it means to be a part of a movement is to just, is to commit to the definitions of that movement, the theory of change of that movement, and to like get, get on board. And, and, you know, if you want to change the definition, we can all sit at the table if you want to change priorities. I mean, I think we've seen that happen with throughout our, our, our decades, you know, where people said, we really need to be paying more attention to this. We need to be paying more attention to this, but you do that collectively, not on a project basis, because it really enables you to to do that work. And I do, I don't know, it just really kind of solidifies for me what, and, and it is kind of in stark contrast sometimes to architectural culture where the goal of a building is to do something that's totally unique or to phrase it in such a way that sounds like no one's ever done it before. <laughs> Whereas in the movement, in the movement building world, the idea is to say, we are doing this with lots of other people to show that it needs to be done. You know what I mean? I just, I love the way you're approaching it. Um, that's super yeah. cool. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's like a little bit of a warring impulse, I think always, right? Like, we're all critical thinkers too, and we want to measure things the most accurately, and we want to talk about them in like the perfect way to represent what we're doing. And so we do sometimes have that instinct to say, no, you know, we, we did this for a long time, but we said, why are we talking about energy savings? We want to be talking about carbon savings. And it felt like we were shouting into the void and, you know, you know, and now I think it's great that we are all talking about carbon savings, but we, we do, a, I, I didn't feel personally, like I sometimes had to kind of tamp down that striving for the perfect mm -hmm. so that we could make more progress together. And, you know, I think that's a constant tension, but you see it in a lot of like discussions about nomenclature and things like that too. I'm like, I think nomenclature is really important. I think words have meaning. I think it matters how we talk about them, but I think occasionally I start to feel like it's a distraction to say, you know, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Like, let's get some progress made together and not get distracted by trying to find the most perfect way to talk about it or the most perfect way to do it. And instead, just make sure we're affecting change in the world. So I, I have those worrying impulses in my, inside myself, and I think we do inside the company. I think the whole movement has those. But more and more, maybe this is age talking or something, but more and more, I just feel like we just got to make some change in the world. Like, let's stop futzing around with how we do it perfectly and just make sure we're having an impact as quickly as humanly possible. Yeah, time feels like it's running out and it feels like, you know, we can talk about how we describe emissions perfectly or we can spend that exact same hours in the day, you know, doing the best we can on our on our build projects. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, okay, well, still on this note about the movement, then can you tell us where you, especially from the projects that you've worked with, where do you feel like we've done the best and made the most progress in the world of sustainability and buildings and where do you wish we had seen more progress what has been maybe the areas of frustration for you that we haven't moved faster yeah yeah i mean i sound a little bit you know pollyanna when i say this but i'm actually really surprised at how much progress we've made um you know obviously there's big forces in the work as we were just talking about with scotus there's there's big important things that are problematic and not helping this movement, but I'm really surprised. I mean, in my time in this industry, it's gone from 
someone who doesn't really care about sustainability bringing us in midway through construction to calculate you know a lead total and see if they can still get certified to being brought in at the very beginning of projects with people saying what's my carbon footprint and what can i do about it like that change happened incredibly fast and now you know our client base is incredibly sophisticated like i've seen just this immense movement in the industry um, to go from treating green building as something they don't care about or maybe afraid of it's just a label to, to i think people really do care about it and they and they're much more conversant in it so i've been you know pleasantly surprised to see how much movement there's been and at a technical level you know stuff i used to spend a month analyzing back in the day is now like we don't even bother analyzing it because the answers are obvious and we know what to do you know there's just been this this really strong progress um so that I'm really pleased at, um, and it's happened faster than I would have expected. Looking at the history of environmentalism in America, it is not a fast moving ship. <laughs> and I've been surprised at how fast our industry has moved given that you know, architecture is also not a fast moving ship. Um, but obviously, you know, there's like a few things that I really do have a beef with. I mean, obviously I'm very disheartened at the lack of leadership at a federal level, right? I mean, I feel like my entire life has been spent working on environmentalism with a lack of leadership at a federal level. Like it somehow just never quite builds up enough momentum for things to really change. Um, and that's really disheartening. Uh, but it also feels, it's, it's funny, Lindsay, just like you were talking about with SCOTUS, I'm like, ah, oh, it feels like that's been the case the whole time, unfortunately. So uh, in some way it just feels like, okay, we're gonna get on with it and make change where we can. Um, some of the other areas where I just wish we were seeing a little more focus is, you know, I, I think we have all the technology we need. I think we don't have a lack of building technology or lack of solutions. I think where we're still facing challenges is because we have a lack of will. You know, I think it's, again, like to me, it always comes down to people making decisions and are they making the decisions we would like them to make? They have the tools at their disposal. They're choosing not to use them. So, you know, why is that happening? I, I'm, I'm a little surprised that we still see so much resistance based on aesthetics. You know, I, I, I came from a very theoretical architectural background. I care deeply about the importance of architecture and built form and space. But sometimes it feels like it's just aesthetics, like the all glass building thing of like that being sacrosanct, stuff like that. I'm a little surprised to still see sometimes in our projects that that's kind of the default. It's not, uh, it's kind of known that it's not the sustainable choice. And I don't think it's about space making either. It's just become this kind of like self-fulfilling prophecy of like, Real estate developers want it because they heard tenants want it. So architects are doing it. And it feels like we really need to break that cycle. Um, I'm also still surprised to see sometimes how much these, again, I think of it as self-fulfilling prophecies can, can kind of make or break some project decisions like, like cost, like this idea that, you know, you go, you get something costed, the cost comes down as the word of God. And now we can't afford something, even though there's so much nuance and how that system gets described and how it's costed and how we could improve it. But often, you know, before you even get to that point, you know, an owner has made a decision to cut something and like that process just feels like it needs a whole lot of improvement. So, you know, all of this is nuance. It's like we've got a really educated owner group, we've got a really educated group of architects and consultants, but sometimes we're short circuiting that process in a way that I don't think is super productive. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that I, I would want us to keep working on in the design field is to say, hey, before we jump to those conclusions that it has to be all glass or we have to have this or this is too expensive, can we really dig at that and, and see what we can come up with um, to move our projects forward? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's, there's something about this that it, I'm going to try to put my finger on it, but like something I realized in graduate school at some point that sometimes people hide behind sort of arguments they think are kind of just irrefutable, rational truths. Um, but when you really unpack them, there's nothing irrefutable. There's nothing <laughs> sort of truth like fact like about it it is just an opinion it is just kind of like a random thing or a fear that you have about trying something new or you know like you were saying with all glass like somebody thinks that they did a survey at some point that said that everybody really likes all glass facades and so they're gonna tell it to you as if it's fact and it's just totally i started to realize like no like you're just hiding your own insecurities or your own preferences, aesthetic preferences, maybe, you know, and not admitting that like you have no reason <laughs> that this is really, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's part of it is we're, we keep trying to fight and say like, this is the smarter choice. This is the financially better choice. And then sometimes people just aren't really engaging. Um, I don't know. It's like my mother used to say, you can't have a rational argument with an irrational person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's funny to me in the architectural field that, yeah, I'm like, well, we know that architects aren't rational. And I say that with love, you know, yeah, <laughs> alienated. we want to do crazy stuff. We want to, we want to shape people's relationship with the rest of the world. Right. So I sort of want folks to like break out of it and like exert some opinion there be like, don't let some real estate survey that never actually took place saying people want all those buildings, you know, determine what you do. Don't you have your own vision you want to sort of impose on this project and let's get that shaped up and let's make that then also really performative. But, you know, lots of our clients are totally game for that, but occasionally it does sort of like short circuit. Those, those yeah. kind of things, as you're saying, those truisms come in and like, because they're sort of established truth, they, they kind of break down the whole process before you can really get in there and come up with an alternative. Yeah, um, so I'm hoping we can sort of break out of that because it's one of those remaining like frustrating bits because it feels very solvable to me. You know, you're like, oh, we can get past this. So let's let's band together and do it. Um, and then let's focus on the stuff that's really hard. Yeah, I, I love that. I that feels um, that feels achievable to me, which is a nice like way for us to be wrapping up the, the conversation with like a reasonable goal for ourselves to try to unpack that and get to the point where we can um, make these decisions better. Um, so, but before we wrap up, we have a question we like to ask all of our guests um, to close out interview, which is about who you're inspired by. Um, it can be anyone or anything, but what, what keeps you going or who do you look to? Yeah, I, I mean, I was thinking about about this question and realizing like in some ways my inspirational figures are all really old. I don't know what that says about me, but they're they're kind of, I think they're still relevant, but they're all from kind of back in the day. Um, they were You're an old soul. You're an old I know. Soul. <laughs> people like transform my thinking back when I was still, you know, thinking really hard about what's my role in all of this. And it, it tends to be folks who like think really deeply about what is our relationship to the natural world. So less how do we change it, but more just what is it and why is it the way it is and who are the players? Um, so like one of the folks I, I still go back to all the time is the writing of Bill Cronin. Um, you know, he writes about the American idea of wilderness and how it came to be and how, you know, how it's predicated on this idea that we're apart from nature. So that wilderness is nature in a pure form without us and how that came to be seen as this pinnacle of, of nature that we should preserve and 
you know, all of that is arguably very false, but, but still very romantic. And I just think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, he wrote in Nature's Metropolis about this, you know, transformation of looking at parts of the natural environment to economic commodity and how that actually helps shape the American landscape. Like that transition of like from nature to raw material to then built form, you know, to me is just like endlessly interesting to kind of go back to those touchstones and say, okay, you know, how does this relate to what I do today? Like, <laughs> it seems really abstract, but I think it's a really important question to keep asking ourselves of like, what is this relationship? What do we want it to be? How are we using the built environment to drive us towards that, that better vision of the future? Not just what technologies are we throwing at things or how are we analyzing things, but what is the relationship we want to have and how do we get there? Uh, to me, every time I go back to that, I just feel like more centered, more, more like I know what I'm focused on and why I'm doing this and, and less you know, frustrated by the day-to-day. So there's a whole there's a whole generation of writers like him, but um, Bill Cronin is probably the, one of the most recognizable of them. So go check him out if you haven't yet. <laughs> and then we can stay up till three in the morning having a, having a college-style conversation about what that should be. Oh my gosh, that sounds like so much fun. I yeah, I am also a fan of Cronin's books and remember learning about them in college, reading them in college. And it was, I think, I think part of it for me was um, this necessary work that we have to do to break down the constructs we were raised with about our relationship to the environment. And like he does a very good job of kind of, um, you know, essentially holding up a mirror to uh, certain set, sort of cultures. Uh, so yeah, I, I love that. And um, and I, I think it's uh, a great read if people haven't, you will find him under William Cronin, not Bill, but uh, uh, yes, that is the author we're referring to. And um, yeah, it's a great read. Well, that is a lovely way to to take us out, Claire. Thank you so much for for joining us. It's been really um, wonderful and uplifting to be with you today. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to talk with other women in the green building movement and be lifted up by it. <laughs> I'm so glad. Well, um, that is it for us this week on the Design the Future podcast. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Uh, please remember to leave us a review on Apple. It really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.